0: now I didn't let the sound guy get back after we finished the kids' talk it's good to be here again today. Uh, I see some visitors. Uh, thanks again for joining us on Paul Kupke, uh, one of the pastors of this church as Matt's already mentioned we're making our way through the letter of First Corinthians uh, as a church we're convinced that the whole Bible is god's word it's worth teaching. Uh, it's worth reflecting on. It's got every every page has things we can learn on. And so today we jump into a passage that uh, you may have heard before. Uh, you may hear it with all sorts of different things in your mind. Uh, let's pray that God will give us wisdom as we look at this passage this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that even when Paul was writing a letter to some friends of his in a church 2,000 years ago, Uh, You had that page in your mind for something far grander. Uh, Thank you for preserving this letter for us today, that it would edify us today, that it would uh, teach us and encourage us today. Uh, We pray that you would speak to us as your people by your spirit uh, through this word to 1 Corinthians this morning. Amen. So today, I'm going to annoy a lot of people. How's that for an opening line? Uh, Often when we read a passage like this, uh, our first questions are, what are prophecy in tongues? Do they still exist and what are the rules for using them? Now I realise that uh, passages like this uh, historically have, have split churches. Even this church here has been split twice over conversations that this passage raises. These are significant issues and we're understandably interested in them. Yet we don't read the Bible for what is interesting. We read the Bible to hear what God is saying to us as his people. These questions were no less divisive in the church in Corinth and yet Paul as he addresses them returns to a thought that he began earlier in the letter in chapter 8 verse 1 where he says knowledge puffs up but love builds up. The problem in Corinth is a sense of superiority about these things, about spiritual gifts, And even today, we can kind of get puffed up and feel superior over someone else about our superior theology or our superior experience. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So today I'm going to spend far less time on the rules for prophecy in tongues than you might like. But I do that so we can focus on what Paul's key idea here in, is in this passage. If we're doing a, a topical series on spiritual gifts, I might be able to drill down deeper into it. But we are working our way through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And throughout that letter, Paul's been dealing with divisions within the church by applying the gospel to them. And he does, he's doing exactly the same thing here today. Now, with that said, uh, if this is stuff that is really interesting to you, you're wrestling with what is prophecy, what's tongues, how to use them. Uh, there's a scholar I trust by the name of D.A. Carson. He's written kind of, he, he gave an extensive talk uh, on uh, prophecy and tongues from this passage. Uh, he, wrestling with uh, linguistic research and, and uh, charismatic and non-charismatic sources. It was 20,000 words. That's seven times longer than what I'm going to preach today. You're welcome. Um, But if you would like to read more, I can make that information available to you. But for today, the big thing I want you to see is how does the gospel apply to this division? If we step out of our modern debates, Paul's point is actually quite clear. Your gifts aren't for yourself. What you say in church isn't for you, it's for others. In the gospel, Jesus doesn't seek his own good, but in love, he seeks out our good. And that's especially clear if you look at the previous chapter, that famous passage on love in Corinthians 13. So this leads us to what is going to be our big idea for today. Love calls us to eagerly desire to use our gifts to build one another up when we gather to worship God. This passage is a great one for you to hear today because it's full of advice about how we should think and how we should speak as we gather together. Now if you find yourself here today not yet convinced about Jesus, welcome. Our passage today assumes there will be people like you within the Christian gathering. So we're really glad that you're here. So let's jump in. Our first point today flows directly out of the previous chapter on love from last week. And it is follow the way of love. As we look at the next couple of topics that are quite divisive in the next few weeks, this is great advice. And so Paul starts exactly with that. Have a look at chapter 14 verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So without love, everything else is a waste of time. The way of love seeks to build others up when they gather, not just yourself. Now we have a good reason to assume that uh, the Corinthians, uh, that tongue speaking was highly valued in Corinth. It made the speakers feel spiritual. And so its usage appears common, but the interpretation of those tongues perhaps far less common. And it leaves those who aren't speaking feeling alienated. They're outsiders. Perhaps to the point of wanting it um, banned or forbidden altogether in verse 39. Love is the true marker of mature Christian faith. Love builds up. And that leads to Paul's argument in this chapter that uh, prophecy is better than tongues when it comes to the gathering. Why? Well, to do that, we need to take a little bit of a dive into what these two spiritual gifts are. Tongues first. Uh, Tongues are a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit whereby a believer speaks forth in a language they have never learned and in which they do not understand. Now these languages have to convey information because Paul assumes that they can be interpreted if they're genuine. Now they could be human, like happens at Pentecost, or they could be angelic, like Paul talks about in the previous chapter. As we'll see later, interpretation is essential. The key consideration in modern tongue speaking in church, this is worth thinking about. Now, I don't think we have a biblical warrant to rule it out as a gift that God could give to his people. However, the experience of many, and that includes me in in previous churches I've been in, is that interpretations, when they are actually given, seem rather bland or vague or perhaps even conflicting uh, between different interpreters. Now, in view of what Paul writes here, the lack of conveyed information at least invites us to question the use of some of this gift when it comes to worship gatherings. Now, Carson in his article shares a a story that I think is helpful for us as we think about the place of tongues within the corporate gathering. Uh, Some time ago, even when he wrote, uh, when he gave the talk, uh, this pastor friend of his in England who was discussing these matters with a well-known charismatic um, clergyman. Charismatic, kind of clearly thinking about the end of this chapter where it says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. I asked this friend what he would do if someone began to speak in tongues in one of the gatherings, at one of the meetings that this pastor was leading. So the pastor replies, I'll let the tongue speaker finish. And if there was immediately an interpretation, I'd have no further objection. Then he paused and asked in return, But what would you do if there was no tongue speaking in your gatherings for six months or so? Charismatic replied, I'd be devastated. There's the difference between us, friend, the pastor said. For you think tongue speaking is indispensable. I see it as dispensable, but not forbidden. So that's tongues and then prophecy, which is the one that Paul's encouraging. Now, there's a long tradition within uh, Christian circles that goes back well before kind of the charismatic movement of associating prophecy with kind of what we understand today as preaching. And there's really good reasons for this. The first, the majority of the work that the Old Testament prophets are doing is calling people to faithfulness to uh, God's revelation that he's already made within the covenant. Second... There's a bit of a concern that if there is Old Testament type prophecy that they'll sort of call into question some of the authority of Scripture that we already have. And then third, if you look at verse 3, Paul suggests that prophecy speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. And there's a sort of clear connection with what we're at least hoping to do with preaching. However, despite those reasons, which I think are quite valid, I don't think that necessarily fully captures everything the New Testament is imagining when it talks about prophecy. Preaching might have the same effect, but that doesn't mean it's the same thing. Paul says prophecy is uh, revelatory, which means it comes by direct revelation in verse 30. Teaching, as we're doing now, is the product of study of God's previous revelation. It doesn't come from di- direct or revelation. And so this kind of idea of prophecy is where Grudem lands. He wrote a 400-page book on this. Again, I'm not expecting you to read it, but this is how he defines prophecy. The reception and subsequent transmission of spontaneous, divinely originating revelation. So that definition leaves room for it to be primarily about uh, calling people to faithfulness, to what God has already revealed. While also having the possible future aspects that we see in parts of the New Testament Acts 11, Acts 21, uh, some of those places. But at the same time, it gives us room to recognize that New Testament prophecy, it doesn't appear to have the same authority as the Old Testament prophets saying, "Thus says the Lord." Because to start with, the prophets in Corinth are clearly under Paul's authority. He's the one who tells them how much they're allowed to speak and when, in verse 29 to 33. And there also, there's this requirement to carefully weigh the prophecies. It assumes that the messages contain a mix of both the valuable and the worthless. So in New Testament prophecy, we don't have new authoritative material, but material that's evaluated by the elders the teachers, according to the authority of truth that's been passed down from the apostles. And so all of this makes New Testament uh, prophecy kind of notoriously difficult to pin down. There's heaps of books, heaps of things written on it. It's why churches have struggled to figure these things out, including this one. Uh, On my current understanding, if I was to compare it, I wouldn't compare it so much with preaching. It'd be closer to those times when I've prayed for people eyes closed saying the things that God brings into my mind which are generally reflections on the Bible but then when I open my eyes there's tears streaming down their face or their faces lit up with a visible joy and um, encouragement from what they've heard from God I'm a teacher I'm not a prophet but those are spoken words that God has brought into my mind that is used to speak into the lives of his people. It builds them up. We long for more of that. This leads us to what I think is the key verse of this whole chapter. Verse 12. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit try and excel in those that build up the church. Pursuing love means desiring the grace gifts that build up the church, the gathered worshippers. The contrast between tongues and prophecy here gives a good example of what Paul's deeper point is. Any gift that builds up the church should be given primacy over those gifts that do not. Now this invites us to reflect as we want to follow the way of love. We walk through those doors and enter into this gathering to build others up. Not simply to feel spiritual. Love builds up. As we ponder this local Corinthian case study of prophecy in tongues, don't allow yourself to be distracted from this key idea. How do you excel in the gifts that God has given you to build up those around you? Ponder that as we go forward. Second point today uh, is that intelligible speech is key to building others up. Now, if the desire is to build up the church, which which is what it should be, the message must be understood. To be strengthened, encouraged, and comforted, minds must be engaged with the truth of God. Have a look at verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Remember the Corinthians had somehow elevated speaking in tongues to something that was spiritually higher than prophecy. But Paul responds with two analogies to prove his point. In verses 7 and 8, he says that even musical instruments need notes that can be differentiated so they can be useful. In verse 9, he says, if you're speaking to someone, you have to be speaking the same language. Otherwise, the person with you is simply just a foreigner. So the real danger for these Corinthian believers is that um, they're considered to be foreigners or barbarians Instead of these spiritual people, they thought they were being. Unless the words are intelligible or interpreted, they can't build others up. Now that's not just true for believers. It's also true for the inquirers and the unbelievers that Paul assumes are going to be with them in the gathering. Now again, if that's you... Welcome, we're really glad that you're here. It's possible that they were justifying their tongues speaking on this idea that uh, it demonstrates the power of God to the unbelievers who are are in the room. Paul says that thinking is childish, it's not mature. And he quotes the Old Testament passage from Isaiah to make his point. The sign in the passage is one of Judgment. When God's people refused to listen to God speaking clearly to them, God sent Assyria in judgment, a nation that they could not understand as a sign of his judgment. They became outsiders. And so this again is where prophecy is better. Through intelligible words, people are marked as outsiders, foreigners, But they're convicted of their sin. They hear the message of God's love being proclaimed. What a terrible thought that someone could be an inquirer and come in to a church and just hear unintelligible babble and just conclude the church is out of their mind. And I think the great thing for us to recognise here is, is that Paul contrasts these um, gifts, these impressive gifts of tongues and prophecy. We are refreshingly reminded that nowhere is God's work more clearly shown than when God used the gifts that he gave to his people to draw unbelievers into worship. What better thing could there be than to have and inquire an unbeliever among us Who falls down in worship and says, Truly God is among you. So Paul offers his life to the Corinthians as an example. He's experienced in speaking in tongues, but in the church, it's all about intelligible, which is understandable, words. Have a look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Whatever place there might be for personal spirituality, the church is a place for intelligibility. Now, in our Western individual thinking, where our decision to come to church uh, is primarily about the benefit that we're going to receive from it, this is really important for us to hear. Personal spirituality, when we gather, is secondary to building up of others within the body. Why do you gather? What is it that you're expecting as you walk into the lantern centre? Love builds up. The reason we strive for intelligibility, both up the front here and in our one another speech, is because only what is understood can be of benefit spiritually. Love builds up. And then finally... We're going to aspire to build others up when we gather. We come here to worship God. And that worship involves hearing uh, about his love for us in Jesus. But it also involves living out that love by seeking others' benefit and spiritual edification. Have a look at verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together... Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Everything we do as we gather to worship is to build others up. Where you sit, how you smile, how you sing, how you listen, What you say. Let me offer you two uh, ways that you can apply this passage yourself uh, this morning as we gather. Number one, let your worship be displayed in being lovingly conscious of the body. Paul makes it clear in verse 17 that we do not gather for individual worship. Have a look at verse 17. You are giving thanks well enough. But no one else is edified. Tongue speakers evidentially think it's this wonderful thing, uh, wonderful experience that strengthened their faith. Despite the the fact that the rest of the church has not found it beneficial. You've got a situation where everyone is trying to do their own thing without being lovingly conscious of the people they're gathered with. That cannot be worship. Doing things for your own benefit doesn't reflect Jesus. The God we worship demonstrated his love by dying for others, for those who did not deserve it. Jesus didn't come from heaven into our world to be served but to serve you cannot be loving and worshipping God if you are not demonstrating love for his people no matter how spiritual you feel the thing that makes God look the most valuable and beautiful is not our private inner experience that can easily be selfish Rather, it's a self-sacrificing love that builds others up, reflecting his own beautiful, other-centred love that he demonstrated on the cross. So let your worship be displayed in being lovingly conscious of the body. And then second, focus on sharing intelligible speech when we gather. Paul emphasises that tongues must be interpreted and only two or three can speak. This is in verse 27 and 28. Same goes with the prophets, only two or three at most speak. The church gathering that Paul's imagining in verse 26 is actually quite interactive. Everyone has something to contribute. Now that list of course is not exhaustive. The New Testament encourages things like corporate prayer, uh, public reading of scripture, uh, teaching by the elders on, on the truth passed down from the apostles and celebrating the Lord's Supper. All those things are part of what's in view. But what is clear in that list is it's far more than just one speaker and everyone else listening. Now, that might give us some things to reflect on as a church as we consider where in our church life there is room for the spontaneous. But the thing I want you to notice today is that you contribute to this gathering whether you're on a roster or not. Building one another up is not just about rosters. It's about serving people. Intelligible speech builds others up. Now whether that's teaching or prophecy or encouragement or sharing what God's doing in your life or prayer... That could be up the front, but it could easily be privately before or after we have this um, corporate time in here. Choose your words and use your words to build others up. Now that might be as simple as starting a conversation about by asking the question how is God working in your life today? You might start by sharing the biblical truth that's fed your heart this morning. But try deliberate, intelligible speech as you uh, take part in this gathering. Try that for a month and see what God does. They say you know you're in revival when people can't help talking about the things of God. Now if we were to focus on this passage in terms of rules... We ask the question, what am I allowed to do? And what am I not allowed to do? Yet what Paul's been doing right through the book of 1 Corinthians is showing that the gospel and not rules is what transforms both church divisions and our whole lives. When we focus on this passage in terms of the gospel, we see the way of love we see walking through the doors of the Lantern Centre as an opportunity to build others up, particularly through intelligible speech. For Paul, this is his preferred and deepest spiritual experience, one in which people find themselves being drawn towards the God who died for them. That's corporate worship that is truly worship. Love calls us to eagerly desire using our gifts to build one another up when we gather for worship. Don't enter this gathering to feel spiritual, to simply feel spiritual. Enter this gathering to build others up. Ask God to help you use the gifts he has given you to follow the way of love and build others up. Amen. Let me pray. (laughs) Father, once more, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago about a particular issue that was dividing a church that somehow in your wisdom you've seen fit to preserve for this church Father, once more, help us to understand what Paul is saying to the church about following the way of love. Father, we confess that so often we've come with private goals in mind, with individual goals in mind, and we've measured what's happened here by kind of how we've gone. Father, give us a bigger view of love a bigger view of your people, that we would come to build them up with the hope and truth of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing in our lives. Same time, Father, I pray for those who have been burned or disappointed or hurt or frustrated or confused by uh, tongues and prophecy in churches in particular. I pray that you would guide them from your word, that you would draw them into the hope that it announces, that faith, hope and love remain and that they would become evident in all of our lives. We pray this for your glory and so that others, including those who don't know you yet, recognise your goodness. Amen.